1: During this extended birthday season, we're in a worship series called Galileo in X Years. Or what are we really calling it? Tomorrow? Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Um, And I know that last week when Josh was here, he took a minute to explain that series. I'm just going to take a second to do that again in case some of you didn't catch it last week. Um, At this 10-year mark, of course, we're in this giant season of celebration of all that we've been through and done together as a church. But we remember, of course, that God calls us forward. And so we're taking time in worship this season to think about what's next. You know, what's next and next and next in the short and medium and long-term in the life of our church. And so we have a lot of former folks like Nicole, our very first ordinand from Galileo Church, reappearing to share a good word about what Galileo meant for them, but also about what it could mean in the future for people who are not here yet. So I've been inviting the preachers um, for this season to choose their own term, like Galileo and how many years, And then to choose a text that helps them think that through. And the danger of this approach, of course, is that we're going to get a bunch of disconnected biblical texts over these weeks. We're going to kind of lose the context for the stories that are being read and told. They're they're ordering in the stories that our ancestors passed down to us. But the beauty of it is, that there's just all this creativity and this tremendous challenge and the feeling that the ancient text is still speaking to us now in this hyper-relevant way, these old stories informing our story specifically as we move ahead together. So it's fun. And the term that I've chosen for tonight is Galileo in parentheses, another 10 years. And our text for tonight is from Acts chapter 2. You might remember that Acts uh, in the New Testament is Luke's memoir of the church's formation about what all those Jesus people did after the embodied Jesus had gone and his spirit had come. And Acts, we might say, is the sort of how it started half of the meme. So, Here's the setup for tonight's story in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit has come to Jesus' first followers like the rush of a mighty wind, and an extremely cosmopolitan crowd has gathered to see what's up. They're in Jerusalem, but people are there from all over the imperial world, and Peter, bless him, he preaches like his life depends on it, like his hair is on fire, and the people respond. And here's what happens next. Next. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you. And for your children, and for all who are far away, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And Peter testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day. As they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A few years ago, I wrote a book. I know, I know, you heard about it, I know. It's a book about you, or about us, collectively, because it's a memoir of Galileo Church's beginning, our first five years together. And even if you were not here 10 years ago for Galileo Church's beginning, or at any point during our first five years, and listen, almost none of you were, for real. In the book, I talk about how we were building something for the sake of people who were not here yet. And that, by definition, includes you. So you are in there, even if and especially because we did not know you yet. I'm bringing up the book tonight because in it I confess something that you need to hear me say out loud once in a while. All church planters lie, we cannot help ourselves. We are wildly optimistic and idealistic humans, and we are doing something kind of impossible. Building communities of belonging in Jesus' name out here on the hyper-individualistic spiritual but not religious frontier, and reinventing church in an increasingly secular, scientific, and skeptical age, and calling people to ancient ways in a technological culture obsessed with innovation and to rest in a capitalistic culture obsessed with productivity and asking people to trust that an institution that has done so much real harm to so many people through the ages might actually still contain a spark of life-giving goodness and insisting against all evidence to the contrary that a good and sovereign God is still driving this bus, bending the arc of the moral universe toward justice, and that God's love is the engine that powers the universe's progress toward God's goals, and maintaining that church should and could be the place where the fullness of human life can be found and lived in real relationship with other human beings, similarly situated, all of us in danger of drowning in a swamp of pretense and judgment and closet, and I'm fine, how are you, for whom the church can and must be a safe shore of truth-telling and screwing up and trying again and learning how to love each other as we learn to rightly love ourselves, so that our souls become more and more expansive, our own hearts gigantic and overflowing with love for the world God still loves and 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 etc cetera, etc cetera. a thousand more impossible things, too numerous and too heavy for any one Sunday night's worth of consideration. That's the job. So we lie, we ecclesial entrepreneurs. We lie to ourselves and each other and everybody else to keep ourselves going. This is how I wrote it, my little confession, in the preface to the aforementioned book. You hope for some words of comfort and courage. I don't know if I have any words like that. What I have, though, is a testimony to what can happen when somebody risks a whole heap of their own privilege and applies all their best mojo to building a new kind of community of belonging in Jesus' name. As you will see, lots of really dumb, sad, disturbing things happen, but out of all the messes I've ever made, God has managed to make something beautiful every time, and I would like to tell you the truth about all of that which is hard because church planters lie incessantly. We tell you we're doing better than we really are, that our churches have more people than we've actually got, and that our worship service only takes an hour. (laughs) I know a lot of church planters, y'all. We don't have a secret handshake exactly, but we know how to find each other. And we all agree we cannot be trusted, at least when it comes to this, when it comes to our churches, the people, the process, the progress. Perhaps saying that we lie is a little strong. It might be more accurate to say that we exaggerate the number of people, the success of our plans, that the worship service only takes an hour, how happy we all are with what's happening among us day by day. Like Luke, writing the biblical account that we call Acts, a memoir of the church's earliest days. It is widely understood by those who study such things by those who study rhetoric, the power of words to make worlds, that the account of the early church in Acts is a bit inflated in places. Not fiction, exactly, but fiction's good friend, hyperbole, in which the truth of a true thing is stretched toward fiction so that it hovers in the space between the truth and a lie. Like this, Allah Acts 2. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, y'all know that I am completely on board with a Eucharistic economy where wealth and poverty commingle and where power is divested from privileged mountaintops and oppression is relieved from life's deep valleys until the playing field of life and the highway for our God are leveled out. But there are a couple reasons to take this description of the early church's extreme commitment to a sharing economy with a couple grains of skeptical salt. First grain. There is an ancient topos in Greek philosophy, a formula for writing about friendship, wherein idealized communities of friends hold all things in common, panta koina in Greek, the exact phrasing that Luke uses here for the early Christian community. Exactly like Plato describing the early days of the city of Athens, where None of its members possessed any private property, but regarded all that they had as the common property of all. Panta koina, they held all things in common. If Luke, our author, as an educated Hellenist himself, has in mind to defend the credibility of the newly christened Christians, drawing on that common topos of friendship, would incline his fellow citizens of Greco-Roman culture to warmth and respect for their lovely way of sharing with each other. It was a well-known way to say that a community was a good one. Second grain, Luke himself will very soon report in the account called Acts that not Everybody who believed was equally excited about sharing all their stuff. I don't have time to hop down those rabbit trails tonight, but please trust that the human tendency to hoard the good stuff for oneself is universal and persistent through the ages. And the early church saw its share of fists clenched tightly around personal possessions, around individual status, and even around the grace of God which some imagined should be more for some kinds of people and less, or not at all, for others. So, those first Christians holding all things in common, kind of true, possibly, but edging toward hyperbole for sure. There's also that part about those early Christians spending much time together in the temple, breaking bread at home, eating their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and, wait for it, having the goodwill of all the people, which, I mean, I guess, except let's face it, it hadn't been all that long since Jesus's coup in the temple, bringing in the riffraff and kicking out the moneymakers. And I really don't know that all the people were all that happy about Jesus's best friends moving into the temple to take his place. Indeed, Acts will go on to recount the beginnings of some really miserable persecution of Christian believers, both from fellow religionists and from the imperial government that did not appreciate the continuation of the disruption they thought they had squashed by means of a strategic smackdown via crucifixion. And I'm not even going to get into the math of Luke's reported 3,000 baptisms on that Pentecostal day after Peter's sermon. No sermon is that good. (laughs) And they're in the city. They're not on the banks of the Jordan River. So how do you get 3,000 people in and out of a fountain or a pool? How long did they have to wait in line for their turn? What did they eat and drink while they waited? Who was counting anyway? How did 3,000 of them know what to do and where to go? There was no QR code for the newsletter. (laughs) Jerusalem, y'all, is a crowded city with narrow streets, logistically baptizing 3,000 people in a single day. Just sounds like a fish story. Like my brother-in-law, Bill, who holds the bass he just caught way out in front of him for photographs. You know, for that trick of perspective, it makes a little fish look big on Instagram. I'm just saying... Church planters lie or exaggerate because it's an impossible thing they are trying to do, insisting that God's long-awaited Messiah has come to this place, to us, in fulfillment of literally centuries, literally generations of prayer and prophecy and wildly unreasonable hope, and that the long-awaited Messiah now has gone after spending his short career on the margins of respectable society, hanging out with the poor, the marginalized, the uneducated, the women, the lepers, the sex workers, all the losers and misfits and dumb fucks he could find. And that he has submitted to, rather than resisting the evils of imperial domination, letting himself be publicly executed as a scapegoat for the sake of his human family, and that God has vindicated his frankly unimpressive but lovely way of life by making death work backwards, thus illustrating that no Pharaoh nor emperor or even death itself can take from God what belongs to God and that the living capital S spirit of this now exalted but also invisible Messiah has inhabited the little S spirits of former fishermen and tax collectors and wives of so-and-sos who are now each empowered to distribute that spirit by pretending to drown people in Jesus' name and... and, and, etc etc a thousand more impossible things, too numerous and too heavy for any one Sunday night of consideration. So when Luke asked the ones who were there what it was like in the beginning, in the early days of the church, I'm sure they told him all that had happened and a little bit more. They held that fish way out in front of them. 3,000 baptized, first day. All things held in common. The goodwill of all the people. It was glorious. The pitfall for those who come after that idealized version of the beginning is the tendency to always be looking backward, you know? Chasing down what supposedly was... Constantly disappointed in where we are now because it used to be so much better. We could call it the make the church great again fallacy. Mm. It's gross, right? Wherein we willfully ignore the exaggerated effect, the homogenized everybody, the hegemonic tyranny that what was good for some was good for all, even if some were deliberately left out of the all. It could happen for Galileo Church on our 10th birthday, I'm saying. We could celebrate our ragtag romantic beginnings when there were just 30 or 3,000 of us, all of us best, best friends, and none of us vegan or gluten free yet. (laughs) All of us invested at exactly the same intensity treating every newcomer with utmost hospitality, eating and drinking and praying and playing in Jesus' name with the pure intention of saving other people's lives the way our lives had been saved, not just because it was fun and we liked it, where our most serious arguments involved whether it's still a margarita if you add strawberries. It was fun back then. I'm not going to lie. The first time Galileo Church karaoke together in my living room and someone requested Baby Got Back, and I was unsure whether it was going to go over with some of the more uh, traditional folks in the room. But when Sir Mix-a-Lot started thumping and it turned out that everybody in the room, all 40 or 4,000 of us, knew all the words to every verse. And we were shouting, you get sprung, want to pull up tough because you notice that butt was stuffed in raucous unison like it was the Lord's own prayer. Well, I knew that we were doing something different and special and important. Here is what I really want you to hear. The faithful hyperbole of Acts 2 and the faithful hyperbole of my own memories of Galileo's first 10 years are faithful hyperboles because they accent, they draw attention to what their authors hope will fuel the next 10 years, the next generation of Jesus' people, the next and the next and the next iteration of what God will do with and for God's people here. We paint the good stuff, the very best stuff, in bright, sparkly technicolor, hoping against hope that that is the stuff that will endure from our past into our future. Because the past is only useful if the best parts of it fuel our future. Remembering where Galileo Church has been, where it came from, and how it became what it is now, is only helpful if it turns our faces toward tomorrow, toward another 10 years together, toward a birthday celebration in 2033 that lots of us in this room won't be here for. Not that we'll be dead. Please, God, let us live to see your new mercies for another 10 years and many more beyond that. But that lots of us will have moved on before we get there. And they, the Galileo of 2033, they will be telling stories about us, church. And they will exaggerate the best parts of us. They will invent their own sacred hyperboles about inside out and Finn's place and how we survived a global pandemic together and how we smacked down the Texas legislature scapegoating of trans folks by our persistent insistence that God's love is the engine that powers the universe, and we will not have it any other way. They will throw a huge Easter tide celebration in memory of us, the thousands of us, who gather here to eat and drink and pray and play together, sharing all our stuff so that nobody goes without, having the goodwill of all our neighbors, the spirit of the living Christ so alive in us that everybody who knows us can see it. That's what they'll say 10 years from now. And it'll be true mostly even if they exaggerate a little bit when they talk about us later may the life we are living
0: together now make it so amen thanks for listening to that's what she said this podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist reverend dr katie hayes galileo church has five missional priorities We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.